Welcome to Obesity Chronicles, a novel perspective. My name is Robert Kushner, and I'm a professor of medicine and medical education at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and director of the Center for Lifestyle Medicine at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented in this podcast is aligned with the views and opinions of the speakers and is sponsored by Novo Nordisk. The speakers have been compensated by Novo Nordisk for their participation in this program. This podcast is not to be used as medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. It is not approved for continuing medical education credits. In today's podcast, titled Obesity, a Disease of Abnormal Physiology, we'll explore the complex pathophysiology of obesity and the intricate interplay between appetite hormones in the gut-brain axis that may lead to the development of obesity. I am pleased to be joined today by Lee Perot and Bob Bush. Lee, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Hi, everybody. I'm Lee Perot. I'm an endocrinologist and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, and I'm very pleased to be with everyone. Hi, I'm Bob Bush. I'm a practicing endocrinologist in Albany, New York, and I'm director of the clinical research at the Albany Endocrine Group. Wonderful. Thanks to both of you. It's a pleasure to share this podcast with you, and I thank you for agreeing to be here with me. Let's take a moment to discuss the obesity epidemic. Here are some of the facts. Obesity has become a major public health issue in the United States. Obesity is now the second leading cause of preventable death in the United States after cigarette smoking. According to the age-adjusted data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, only about 13% of adults between ages 20 and 74 years in the United States had obesity from 1960 to 1962. This number has steadily climbed over the years, and by 2017 and 2018, it is more than tripled to approximately 43%. Based on the predictive analysis of adult BMI data from over 6 million adults in the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System from 1993-1994, and again from 1999 to 2016, it is projected that nearly half of U.S. adults will have obesity by 2030. Additionally, the direct cost of obesity-related medical care has also been rising at an alarming rate. Data from the 2001-2016 Medical Expenditure Panel Survey reported that in 2016, the obesity-related medical cost was $260 billion. According to the World Obesity Atlas Economic Impact Model for Healthcare Expenditure for Obesity, by 2030, it's projected that the cost of individuals with a BMI of 25 or more will reach $411 billion. With this alarming rise in the obesity epidemic, it is essential for us to understand the burden obesity imposes on both society and individuals. Lee, let me start with you. Can you speak more about the key burdens of obesity? Yeah, absolutely. What is important to realize is that the direct medical costs associated with obesity that you just described, Robert, are only the tip of the iceberg. Obesity is also associated with a great deal of indirect costs, such as lost productivity. 
These indirect costs can have a big impact on individuals, families, and societies as a whole. Obesity is such a complex disease with far-reaching consequences. It impacts various aspects of health and the economy. So let's start with the health consequences. Obesity is associated with an increased risk of weight-related chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, certain types of cancers, sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, polycystic ovary syndrome, among many others. Obesity can also worsen certain existing health conditions and reduce overall life expectancy. The physical challenges associated with obesity, such as difficulty moving around in pain, can make it difficult to participate in everyday activities and enjoy recreational pursuits. Obesity can also have a negative impact on a person's emotional well-being, sometimes leading to a low self-esteem, body image issues, and social stigma. Individuals living with obesity are often stigmatized and discriminated against in many settings, including education, employment, healthcare, and interpersonal relationships. This stigma can lead to psychological distress, isolation, and limited access to opportunities and resources which can further worsen the burden of obesity on individuals. Obesity can also have a negative impact on work productivity and absenteeism. This can affect not only individuals, but also employers and the overall economy. According to data from the Medical Expenditure Panel Survey in 2016, chronic diseases due to obesity cost the United States 9.3% of its gross domestic product. Shifting our focus from the broader societal implications of obesity, let's delve deeper into the core issue at hand, obesity as a chronic disease. It's important to recognize that obesity is far more complex than the mere matter of willpower. While we've discussed the burden it places both on individuals and society, it's equally important to understand that obesity is a multifaceted disease with environmental, genetic, and physiologic underpinnings. By acknowledging obesity as a disease rather than attributing it solely to willpower, we can better understand the pathophysiology of obesity and work toward more empathetic and effective approaches for weight management. Bob, can you explain the complex interplay between environment, genetics, and physiology that can result in the development of obesity? Robert, you have noted such an important point that environmental, genetic, and physiologic factors all work together and can contribute to obesity. It's not just one factor that causes obesity, but instead it's a complex condition that's influenced by a variety of factors. We know that the genetic makeup of humans has not changed significantly in the past 50 to 60 years, so we cannot attribute the rising obesity rates solely to genetics. So what about our society that is leading to more and more individuals living with obesity? Is it possible that individuals living in the early 1900s have the same genetic predisposition for obesity as people do today? And one of the differences now is that the environment is promoting weight gain. This could be due to a number of factors, such as the availability of ultra-processed foods, the decline in physical activity, and the 24-7 availability of food. Other factors that may contribute to obesity also include stress, sleep deprivation, cessation of smoking, medications that can cause weight gain, and endocrine disruptors, amongst others. All of these factors can work together to promote weight gain. For example, ultra-processed foods are often high in calories and low in nutrients, which can lead to weight gain. Physical inactivity can also contribute to weight gain as it reduces the number of calories that we burn each day. 
and the 24-7 availability of food makes it easier to snack throughout the day, which can also lead to weight gain. So it is possible that our environment is starting to affect weight gain. Ultra-processed foods, among other things, may be biologically affecting how we sense appetite and body weight regulation. This could lead to altering of the hormonal signals that the brain receives from the gut and other areas of the body, which is involved in appetite regulation. Genetics can also play a key role in the development of obesity. Numerous twin and family studies have shown that 40 to 70% of the inter-individual differences in body mass index can be explained by genetics. Genes can influence how much a person's weight is impacted in response to environmental factors. Obesity is rarely caused by a single gene, but rather by combined effects of many genes. There are nearly 100 different genes that have been linked to obesity, and scientists are still learning about how they all work together. Some people may inherit genes that may make them more susceptible to develop an accumulation of fat in fat cells. For example, excess energy from food in these individuals may be more likely to induce excessive accumulation of sick fat in adipocytes. Sedentary lifestyle in individuals who are genetically environmentally susceptible can lead to positive caloric balance, but can drive pathophysiological processes such as adiposity, defined as an accumulation of fat in adipocytes, and adiposopathy, also known as dysfunction of adipocytes. Adiposopathy is a dysfunction of fat cells that can lead to metabolic diseases. It's characterized by changes in the size, shape, and function of fat cells. People who have overweight or obesity are more likely to develop adiposopathy, which can lead to increased inflammation and to the release of harmful adipokines that can contribute to pathogenic interactions with other body organs. Adiposopathy can also manifest as clinical symptoms and conditions such as prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, metabolic syndrome, and certain cancers, amongst other diseases. Bob, you bring up an excellent point regarding adiposopathy and adiposity, whether you use the term sick fat, adiposopathy, unhealthy fat, whichever word you use, it is excess body fat and dysfunction of body fat that can be a burden in obesity and can increase the risk of various diseases. Lee, I wonder if you can give an overview of the role of adipose tissue in the body, specifically distribution and function of adipose tissue and its role in obesity. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So adipose tissue or fat tissue is an important part of a healthy body. It helps to store energy, insulate the body, and protect organs. However, too much adipose tissue can be harmful. The healthy maximum body fat percentage for men and women varies depending on age, body fat distribution, and overall health. However, as a general rule, some healthy body fat percentage averages between 12 and 20% for men, 20 to 30% for women. And there's two main types of adipose tissue, brown adipose tissue and white adipose tissue. Brown adipose tissue is less common, but it is important for thermogenesis or heat production. White adipose tissue is the most common type of adipose tissue, and it stores energy in the form of triglycerides. White adipose tissue is classified into two types, subcutaneous and visceral. Subcutaneous adipose tissue is found beneath the skin, and visceral adipose tissue is found deep in the abdomen, surrounding the organs. 
Subcutaneous adipose tissue has been shown to have protective effects against metabolic dysfunction, whereas visceral adipose tissue may be associated with metabolic complication and appears to increase the risk of type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, and cardiovascular disease. For the purpose of today's podcast, I'll refer to white adipose tissue just as adipose tissue. Adipose tissue is not just a passive store of energy. It also secretes hormones and cytokines that can affect metabolism and inflammation. For example, adipose tissue secretes leptin, a hormone that signals to the brain that the body is full. Adipose tissue also secretes adiponectin, a hormone that mediates insulin sensitivity. In addition to the amount of adipose tissue, where the tissue exists is also important. Believe it or not, the number of fat cells in your body is likely determined during adolescence. Researchers have found that this number remains constant throughout adulthood, even if you gain or lose weight. When we gain weight, the fat cells expand, but their capacity for expansion is limited. According to the hypothesis of adipose tissue expandability, the limited ability of the adipose tissue to increase in proportion to energy storage can lead to fat overflow and result in the deposition of excess triglycerides in non-physiological sites such as the heart, liver, skeletal muscle, kidney, and pancreas. Thus, adipose tissue dysfunction or adiposeopathy also includes ectopic fat deposition. The excess accumulation of fat in non-physiological sites known as lipotoxicity could lead to adverse effects, including a rise in inflammation and insulin resistance. So for example, when ectopic fat builds up in the pancreas, it can make it difficult to produce insulin, which can lead to type 2 diabetes. Or ectopic fat deposition in the kidneys can further contribute to the impairment in renal function. And what's interesting about the fat overflow hypothesis is it's impossible to know where someone's threshold is based on their appearance. Different studies have suggested that everyone has a tipping point, but it's different for everyone. This tipping point is influenced by factors such as race, ethnicity, genetics, and lifestyle. For example, it's been hypothesized that people from South Asia tend to have a lower threshold for fat accumulation in the liver. This means that even a small amount of weight gain may lead to fatty liver disease. This is in contrast to people from other racial and ethnic groups who may be able to gain more weight without developing fatty liver disease. The diversity in how fat is distributed in the body is also fascinating. People from different racial and ethnic groups tend to have different amounts of subcutaneous fat, that is fat stored underneath the skin, and visceral fat, which is the fat that is stored around the organs. This difference in fat distribution can affect a person's risk of developing certain diseases. So Lee, I think you make a really good point, which we often don't think about. Subcutaneous fat is important for the body. People with lipodystrophy, a rare genetic or acquired disorder that prevents them from storing fat subcutaneously, often become sick because the fat is stored in ectopic regions, such as the liver and the muscles. This can lead to inflammation, insulin resistance, which can increase the risk of developing certain chronic diseases. So if you're born with a lot of subcutaneous fat storage ability, you may be lucky. Bob, as Lee mentioned, when we gain weight, the fat cells expand. So how does the pathological enlargement of fat cells lead to adipose tissue dysfunction, which in turn underlies the development of obesity-related disease? As Lee mentioned, when there is limited ability of the adipose tissue to increase in proportion to energy storage, there is fat overflow from the subcutaneous fat depot into the visceral fat. 
Visceral fat can store lipids, but when there is too much of it, it can deposit in non-physiological sites and become ectopic fat. Adipose tissue dysfunction is a mechanism linking obesity to the development of metabolic comorbidities. Adipose tissue dysfunction is typically caused by the hypertrophy and hyperplasia of adipocytes. The blood supply is not able to meet the enlarged fat masses, increased demand for oxygen, resulting in hypoxia. The increased recruitment of macrophage, dendritic cells, and lymphocytes lead to a decrease in adiponectin expression, along with an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines, which increase oxidative stress, insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, and can result in a progressive accumulation of ectopic fat. Ectopic fat, in turn, further increases pro-inflammatory cytokine activity, which can contribute to lipotoxicity via oxidative stress and endothelial dysfunction, among other things, which can lead to the development of obesity-related diseases. Different phenotypes of obesity have different levels of inflammatory cytokines, which reflect the dysfunctional adipose tissue continuum. So to summarize, fat is initially deposited in the subcutaneous region, but as the amount of fat increases, inflammatory mediators are released. These inflammatory mediators halt the recruitment of new adipocytes, which reduces the capacity of subcutaneous tissue to store more fat. At this point, the excess fat is stored in either visceral or ectopic tissues. This is known as the adipose tissue overflow hypothesis. It is thought that everyone has their own individual point at which their subcutaneous tissue reaches its maximum storage capacity. That is, the tipping point depends on genetic and environmental factors. So, Lee, the body's defense of fat storage is a complex system that is designed to protect us from starvation. We, we know that from teleologic information. How do our bodies maintain a certain level of stored fat and why can this make it difficult to lose weight? It's a great question. So humans have an amazing ability to store fat for times of food scarcity. This was a critical survival adaptation in our evolutionary past, but it is no longer as necessary in our modern world where food is abundant. When we eat more calories than we burn, our bodies store the excess energy as fat. This is a normal process, but it can become a problem if we overeat on a regular basis. However, when our bodies become overloaded with fat, our bodies can adapt to maintain this higher level of fat storage, even if we are overweight or have obesity. One of the reasons why it is so hard to lose weight is that our bodies are very good at defending our fat stores. When we start to lose weight from eating less calories, our bodies release hormones that regulate our appetite. This can make it harder to manage weight. This is why obesity is such a challenging condition to treat. It's not just about eating too much and exercising too little. It's also about our body's natural defense of fat. There is still much we don't understand about obesity. However, we are learning more about the role of fat in the body and how it can contribute to obesity. This knowledge is essential for developing effective treatments for obesity and its associated comorbidities. So what does this mean for our patients with obesity? It means that we need it to be patient in our weight management goals. Thanks, Lee. You know, you bring up an excellent point about how much we still don't know about adipose tissue and the pathophysiology of obesity. You know, I divide pathophysiology of obesity into two categories for simplicity. 
The first category is the effect of excess fat itself, which Lee and Bob did a wonderful job explaining. The second category is appetite dysregulation, which can lead to increased hunger and a decreased ability to feel full. There's a number of factors that can contribute to weight regulation in people with obesity. However, the exact cause of appetite dysregulation in obesity is still not fully understood. Bob, let me turn to you. Can you describe the role the brain plays in regulating appetite and eating behavior? Absolutely, Robert. The gut-brain axis is a remarkable network that highlights how various hormonal signals are exchanged between the gut and other areas of the body and the brain. This dynamic system involves a myriad of factors such as neurons, hormones, and chemical messengers that work in harmony to maintain a delicate balance within our bodies. The hypothalamus is a key player in weight regulation. I like to think of the hypothalamus as mission control and its influence by peripheral signals from the gut and other parts of the body. Within the hypothalamus is the arcuate nucleus, which senses and integrates nutritional signals to control eating behavior and energy expenditure. One such nutritional signal is the hormone ghrelin, which is secreted by the stomach during the fasting state to regulate appetite by increasing feelings of hunger and driving food intake. After a meal, additional hormones, including glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1, peptide YY or PYY, and cholecystokinin, and insulin, amongst others, are secreted from the intestines and the pancreas to regulate appetite and by inducing feelings of satiety and reducing food intake. These appetite hormones, along with other circulating nutrients and neuronal signals, act on the brain regions that regulate energy metabolism and eating behavior. Thus, the brain plays a critical role in regulating appetite and body weight with multiple peripheral hormones acting in concert to balance energy intake and expenditure. One study enrolled 50 patients with body mass indexes ranging from 27 to 40 kilograms per meter squared, in which 34 patients completed the study. These patients achieved an initial weight loss with a very low calorie diet for eight to 10 weeks. These patients then received counseling from a dietitian for one year to maintain this weight loss due to caloric restriction. During the course of the trial, circulating levels of appetite-regulating hormones were measured at baseline at week zero and immediately after initial weight loss at week 10 and one year after initial weight loss at week 62. The study showed that at a year after the initial weight loss from caloric restriction, ghrelin levels, the hunger hormone that promotes food intake, remained elevated compared to baseline. And there was a decrease in satiety-inducing hormones such as leptin, amylin, and GLP-1. And I've heard Lee call this phenomenon hormonal conspiracy, whereby there is a profound need to eat that results in weight regain after weight loss by restricting calories. In other words, when someone is in negative energy balance, their appetite hormones are working against them to make it difficult to lose weight. This is why it can be so challenging to lose weight and maintain the weight loss, even if someone is eating healthy diet and exercising regularly. Thank you, Bob. Now that you've described the importance of hormones in the gut-brain axis, let's briefly talk about one endogenous hormone in particular, GLP-1 and the role it plays in the gut-brain communication system. 
Lee, let me turn to you for this uh, question. What do we know about the role of endogenous GLP-1 in the gut-brain axis? Yeah, you bet. Endogenous GLP-1 released from the intestinal L cells in response to nutrient ingestion acts as a signaling molecule that communicates between the gut and the brain. It exerts its effect through GLP-1 receptors located in various regions of the central nervous system, including the hypothalamus and brainstem, among other regions. Once GLP-1 is released from the L cells, it influences the gut-brain axis by modulating gastric emptying and gut motility. It can delay gastric emptying, slowing down the movement of food from the stomach to the small intestine. This delay contributes to increased feelings of fullness and satiety, further influencing appetite control. GLP-1 binds to GLP-1 receptors within the hypothalamus, particularly the arcuate nucleus, to regulate appetite. The arcuate nucleus serves as a crucial hub for appetite regulation, and within this nucleus that we find two key types of neurons, agouti-related peptide, or AGRP neuron, and pro-opio-melanocordin, or POMC neurons. Binding of GLP-1 to the GLP-1 receptors stimulates POMC neurons, which promote satiety or fullness and decreases food intake. GLP-1 also indirectly decreases the activity of AGRP neurons, which promote hunger. These changes in neuronal activity can lead to a variety of effects, including reduced appetite and increased satiety. Thus, GLP-1 is one of the important hormones that regulates appetite, and we are slowly learning more and more about the role of this naturally occurring hormone in appetite regulation. So from our discussion today, what we've learned is that there is no single cause of obesity, but is thought to be due to a combination of factors, including genetics, environment, and lifestyle. These factors all contribute to a long-term positive caloric balance, which can ultimately lead to obesity. Genetic factors play a role in determining how easily a person gains weight, but environmental factors such as diet and physical activity are also important. At the base of obesity is adiposopathy, which is characterized by dysfunctional adipose tissue. Adiposopathy is caused by positive caloric balance in genetically and environmentally susceptible individuals and can lead to downstream immune and hormonal dysregulation. To make matters worse, when people with obesity try to lose weight and are in a state of negative energy balance, it can trigger a hormonal response known as metabolic adaptation that makes them want to eat more and regain the lost weight. This is what we call the hormonal conspiracy. As a result, people with obesity are constantly fighting to maintain weight loss. This has been a very engaging and educational conversation. We have covered a wide range of important topics, including the prevalence and pathophysiology of obesity, the role of dysfunctional adipose tissue in obesity, and the gut-brain axis in appetite regulation. I'd like to turn to both Lee and Bob now to summarize some of the key takeaways that you would like our listeners to know. The field of obesity medicine is rapidly evolving, and we are now able to treat obesity as a chronic progressive disease. This has been made possible by our growing understanding of its pathophysiology, including the role of dysfunctional adipocytes and the hormones of the gut-brain axis. But while we are experts in the science of obesity, it is important 
that to be able to translate this knowledge into conversations with our peers and patients alike in a way that is relevant and understandable. This can be challenging, but it is essential for providing effective care. I agree with Lee, and thanks to new scientific advances, we are now able to understand the root causes of obesity and develop targeted treatments. And bridging the gap between science and patient care is especially important when discussing obesity. By communicating the science of obesity in a clear and concise way, we can help our patients make informed decisions about their weight management care. This concludes this episode of Obesity, a Disease of Abnormal Physiology. Please join us for the next episode of Obesity Chronicles, a novel perspective where we will further explore the topic of metabolic adaptation. For more information, please visit RethinkObesity.com. Novo Nordisk is a registered trademark of Novo Nordisk AS. All other trademarks, registered or unregistered, are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023 Novo Nordisk, all rights reserved, US 23OB00235, December 2023, 